Okay, so all of chapter 5 of Exodus in this Walking with God series, it's a slow start, fits to start, as we often see as our faith journey. I think this chapter is offensive. Many people take offense within this chapter, one to another and on the words being spoken. Maybe, maybe we will as we read it. Let me walk us through it, and I'll tell you what, what verses I'm going to skip over, starting in Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Verse 4, the king of Egypt continued, Moses, Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Pharaoh then said, look, the people of the land are numerous, and you're stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to these lies. Verse 13, the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required for you each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet the quota of the bricks from yesterday or today as you did before? Verse 19, the Israelite foremen realized they were in trouble when they were told, you shall not reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. Verse 20, they found Moses and Aaron, and they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why? Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. You see the offense of the story of this chapter? At first read, we're likely offended by Pharaoh, this callous, uh, brazen king of Egypt, dismissing Moses, defying God. Who is, who is this God? Not that he hadn't heard of Yahweh. That would have been an unusual thing to not know the local deity of the peoples living in your midst, but simply dismissive. Who is Yahweh? I don't bow to him. Pharaoh considered himself like their God over these people. The reason that Egypt could flourish or have life was because of him. So he's cruel and he's cunning as well as he is callous. Not a great combination for a leader. You see the cunningness in trying to divide the trust, because what happened previously in chapter 4, the elders and 
representing Israel actually believed Moses' message, just as God said they would. They believed him that he was sent and that God would be with him and with them and through him would deliver them. They believed the signs that he showed. And somehow Pharaoh probably recognized that there was an uprising coming, a new swell, a new attitude. And so he divides by laying on a heavier burden. And it worked. The people now turn against Moses. So this Pharaoh is cunning, and we take offense at him as an adversary of God and his people. On second read, if we were to reflect or read it again, we might be offended by God himself. Moses is wrestling with God, as we hear in that final prayer of the chapter. Had not God said he would be with them. He had heard the cries of his people. He had seen their distress, and this is why he is sending Moses. This is why he is coming with an outstretched mighty hand to deliver them. And they're believing it. Moses is now stepping out in faith to do the thing that he didn't want to do in the first place. Why now a harder burden the way the story reads, it leads us as the readers to, if we are going to believe in this God, Yahweh, that he has the power and the ability to swiftly deliver. He's not inept. He doesn't need people to come and do his work for him. Why is he waiting? Why not the quick deliverance as he had promised? Why is the... Why is the burden and the abuse and oppression upon his people only increasing and extending? Remember in the timeline, it's been 80 years. Moses is 80 years old at this point. 80 or more years of oppression under at least two different pharaohs. And they had been crying out to their God for these decades with no relief. And Moses reflects that in his prayer. Lord, why? How long? This prayer we often see throughout the pages of scriptures. Where are you now, God? Did you not promise? Did you not send? Did you not call me? You have not rescued your people at all. You have not been faithful to your word or your promise. With that read, we too might be offended by God. And maybe fairly, anger, offense, as we can resonate with some of those same prayers in our own life and our own faith journey. But perhaps upon third read or further reflection, we see that the primary offense is with Israel because they reflect us. They represent us. This story is like a mirror into our own faith journey. We see their wavering, their doubting, their lack of faith, often their impulsiveness rather than resoluteness. And this becomes a fairly continuous theme throughout this story and the pages of Scripture. At times, God's people believing wholeheartedly, making declarations of their own faithfulness. Yes, we will. We will be faithful. We will do it. We believe you, God. And seemingly in the next moment of hardship or trial, 
or oppression. They crumble in their faith. They doubt. They turn. They accuse. They curse the leaders placed over them. As we see ourselves in our own faith journey, as this story becomes like a mirror to us, may we be humbled, also convicted, and I believe led to encouragement by who our God is. That's how we journey through this story and as a metaphor, this bumpy road of faith that we know all too well. For how often have we cried out that same prayer? God, where are you now? If we endure, if we endure this story, if we endure in our faith, we will be in ever-increasing awe of our God who consistently is faithful, loves and pursues his people, will be with them, will deliver, will rescue, will triumph. That's the broad meta-narrative. That's the story arc of this story in Exodus specifically and all of Scripture, which is meant to reflect God's history, though not a history book, but reflecting who he is throughout history. This is the, me the meta-narrative arc. In our moments, in our days, in our circumstances, we then wrestle in our faith, don't we? In that place of God, where are you now? This doesn't feel like your presence, your deliverance, your answer to your promises, especially if, and I'm going to step out on a limb and be assuming that many of you have sensed a certain call of God. Maybe you wouldn't use those words. Maybe you would. To change course or direction in life at some point, in a sacrificial way because you sensed the Lord was leading you. You might use other metaphors like a door opened. Scripture uses that metaphor too. Paul does. A door opened unto us. Maybe a door, you sensed a door open that you weren't even looking for. And by stepping through it in faith, the whole trajectory of your life changed. And at moments you were excited and hopeful that this is the Lord. This is exactly what he has for me, this journey, this path. And then it got hard. Sometimes immediately so. We're wrestling, praying, asking God for a leadership or a change or a direction. And we sense it. And we step out in faith. And it seems like in the next moments of our life, it gets heavier, harder, more difficult. If anyone can resonate with that, you are in good biblical company. If we know our scriptures, it's essentially what seems to always happen, at least in the stories of those that are striving to pursue God and be with him. And often then we say, well, that must have been wrong. I must have misheard. That must not be the Lord because this is difficult. And we either want to turn back as Israel would, or we want to give up in the moment, give up on our faith or give up on our pursuit. This is very real, tangible not glossed over story of God that we are trying to enter into. This is what it seems to mean to walk with God. The long, bumpy, and winding road, to use that metaphor, 
It seems that there's no straight, flat path to walking with God. Knowing our topography around this area, some of you, out, outdoors people and hikers, actually pursue the rugged territory, the switchbacks, the meandering, the undulating roads, because in that is not only the forming journey and the accomplishment of the hike or the walk, but often the breathtaking views along the ways. The mountains, the rivers, the valleys, the things to see and experience that make it all worth it. And so it becomes both the journey, the hike, the, the strain to accomplish, to push ourselves that is as much as the destination often or the, the scenes along the, the way. Will that make it worth it? Will that be enough to call us to endure in faith? Back to this passage. Chapter 5 and 6 really serve as a kind of a bridge, a preparation. And when we get into chapter 6, even a pause in the story to build the tension. And it recounts the list. It's like a, a genealogy is stuck right in there. We'll see it at, at some point as we continue in this story. And I believe it's meant to pause and to make us do exactly what we're doing now as the readers take some deep breaths, question, wonder, will God be faithful? Will he do what he said? And there's, there's a tension in that. And I believe that's where the author and authors and editors are leading us in the story to wrestle with that, to ask the very same questions that Moses asked, that Israel asked, who are you, God? Where are you, God? Will you be faithful to your promises? And then to turn and ask ourselves, will we trust? Will we endure? Will we walk with God in the midst of the trials? Up to the mountaintop, down to the valleys, when we can't see around the bend. I believe that's where we're being led in the story. To ask those questions, to engage it, to let it be like a mirror to us and to our faith journey. Couple notes. This Pharaoh is the second Pharaoh, the first one that originally had allowed Moses to grow up in his household and then threatened to kill him when he essentially defied Pharaoh to support and to stand with his Israelite brothers and sisters. That Pharaoh has died. The second Pharaoh has been raised up. As we've called out, these are unnamed rulers. Their names fade into history, or as the name of Yahweh stands forever as the righteous king. But this second Pharaoh, similar in the same mold, it seems, as the first, but maybe learning, learning a new way of rulership or leadership. Remember, the first Pharaoh was concerned about the growing Israelite population, that they might become a threat to him, and so was trying to diminish the population in evil ways through the killing of babies. This next Pharaoh says, oh no, let Israel flourish because they're under my oppression. Imagine what we can build on the backs of these slaves. Moses, do not stop them from their work. I need them to build my empire. So perhaps even more arrogant and power-hungry than the first Pharaoh. 
But both pharaohs stand as accusers and adversaries against God and his people. It seems that there's always an accuser and adversary against God and his people from the earliest pages of Scripture when the serpent shows up in the garden to ask questions of Eve and to tempt to invite doubt, discouragement, question about who God is. Essentially, I see the serpent asking the same question that Pharaoh is asking or declaring to Moses. Who is this God? Right at the core of the adversary's lies are that same question. Who is Yahweh? Who is your God? Is he really who you think he is? Is he really good? Does he really care about you? If he did, would your life look like this? These are the same questions that we have probably all felt because we have an adversary against God and against his people faithfully trying to follow him. Do you really know him? Because if you did, would he not be blessing you in a different way? He's allowing this to happen. Or worse, sending it into your life. Now, of course, I'm expanding onto those questions, but the heart of the adversary is the same, and Pharaoh represents that heart. Who is this God? I do not bow to him. I do not respect him or honor him. He means nothing to me. It invites God's people to ask those same questions, to doubt and to distrust. Moses actually seems to hold on to faith here. Good job, Moses. You got one in your column. Well, the Israelite foreman put in place and representing Israel, immediately doubt, question, grumble, crumble in their faith at God's deliverance as the weight of the burden comes upon them in their day-to-day life. They succumb to the adversary, to that accusing voice. Moses wrestles with God. He doesn't dismiss it. He comes honestly. Verse 22, O Lord, why? You have brought this trouble. That's pretty bold. On your people. Is this why you sent me? Ever since you sent me, it's gotten harder for your people. You have not rescued them at all. I think some of us either grew up in a faith context that simply would not allow that kind of a prayer, would not make space for it, or would only dismiss dismiss Moses as in the wrong here. But we read this story, Moses boldly confronts his God when he wrestles with his promises, and God engages him in that wrestling match. That's what we are invited to. Rightly, we would be humble of heart, and and in the next moment after wrestling in prayer in that way, God, why, where, how long, what about your promises? Did you not call me here? Deep breath. God, test my heart. 
Is it pure? Is this righteous anger, frustration, ignorance in my perspective? Help me, God. But these are very real engagement. This is what I believe God wants from us. When we become apathetic or dismiss or discouraged, the enemy has won. When we engage in these kinds of real raw prayers with our God, we are actually declaring, God, we do believe you are still there. Hear us and we'll be faithful to your promises. We're just not experiencing it now in the moment. This is the journey of faith I want to present for us. The winding and bumpy road, often what it looks like to walk with or to wrestle with God. Scripture is as a whole has these, this as a meta-narrative. God's promises will always be fulfilled, but not always in the way or the timing that we expect or want. Amen, Amen thank you. And we see, we see the snapshots, even in some, some of what we would have often said, the heroes of the faith, the ones that rise to the top, like Abraham, the father of, of faith for Israel who was called by, met by God, called by God, had his life reordered by God, and given promises from the beginning. You will be a father of multitudes. Nations will come from you. And not only that, but every people on the earth will be blessed through you. Because through his offspring and his seed, ultimately the Redeemer would come. Jesus would come. Abraham had to wait year after year after year for that promise to come to fulfillment. And he was a hundred, and his wife Sarah was 90 by the time Isaac was born. He wrestled, he doubted, he took matters into his own hand, saying, I must need to help God out to fulfill this promise at great consequence. But the narrative of his life was, God, I wasn't looking for your call, your word, or your promises. You came into my life and he could have said something very similar to Moses. Where are you now? This doesn't feel like the fulfillment of your promise. I don't see it, God. All of Israel, we see that journey as God's chosen people, like a son to God their father, as we've seen in this story, promised a land, an inheritance, meant to be like the picture of living in God's kingdom. Promised a land that would be abundant, flowing with milk and honey. And their whole story is one of trying to come into possession of that land and then stay there with God in faithfulness. And through outward oppression, through pluralistic religious influences, through invading armies, through internal political divisions, they struggle and struggle and struggle. That's their story. King David Probably the rising as the greatest king, called a man after God's own heart from a lowly beginning as the overlooked younger son of Jesse, forced to be away from the family to tend to the sheep. You may know some of his story is eventually called out, promised to be the rightful king, and he will eventually take that place, but not without turmoil. Saul trying to kill him, the one that should have mentored him his own family turning against him, massive missteps in his life as a husband, in his marriages, 
in his parenting struggles and stumbles along the way. At times exhibiting exemplary faith, resolve, and courage. And at other times wavering, doubting, turning away from God, crying out to God in his return in his own distress. We could trace this storyline. I picked some, some pinnacle leaders and characters. Well, you could trace it through God's people and through individuals of the kings and the prophets. A third of the psalms themselves are lament psalms, crying out essentially, how long, O Lord, where are you now, God? If we fast forward to the ultimate king and prophet, Jesus, Jesus confounds us in so many ways. He stretches our faith in a good God. Because here comes one as the son who finally is faithful through and through, does not waver, comes to do God's will only, and completes it. And yet he is resisted, rejected, persecuted, abandoned, and ultimately killed upon the cross. While we know the end of the story and rejoice, Without glossing over these stories in Scripture and the story of our Lord Jesus, will we not wrestle with what it means to faithfully follow? Why then would anyone follow this God? Love Him. Trust Him. Through trial. Through difficulty. In life. Maybe you've prayed those prayers. Maybe you've Asked those questions. Remember, Jesus can be bold enough to say to his disciples in John 15, 20, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So follow me, he calls us. And this will be true for many of the apostles and first followers of Jesus who were persecuted and imprisoned. Paul often recounted his inner turmoil in faithfulness to his call from a prison cell in Rome. This is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he declares famously, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And you hear that, that pain as he's awaiting. He's awaiting his own execution by Nero at this point. If I am to go on living, essentially if God rescues me from this place, that will be fruitful labor. I believe it. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He's in a place where he said, death is better than this. Because in death, I'm with Christ. That's his faith. His faith shines through, but he's declaring, while walking in faith to follow Jesus, to proclaim the gospel, here he is in a place of, of suffering where death feels like a relief. Maybe we haven't been pressed to that place in our own faith and our journey, but we can resonate. We know those that have. Death and my hope in the kingdom of heaven sounds better than enduring here. No, not all disciples of Jesus will experience the same kind of persecution. 
or be asked to walk that, but certainly we can all wrestle with and resonate with our faith being shaken and tested and wondering, God, where are you? And perhaps even take offense at this God or be angry with him. I know some of you have felt that and even fairly recently, especially when, as I mentioned before, we believe we've stepped out in faith, changing course in our life, even at great sacrifice, and the burden increases like a load of bricks upon us. And if you're in that place now, you're not alone. Probably those nearest to you have already walked that journey or have been in that place and are enduring. What we see on the pages of Scripture, the grand story, not in every individual, but in many, that those who endure through the trials, in the wrestling, with plenty of low moments along the way, but those that endure, that walk this journey, gain something that can never be gained or earned or bought in any other way, so it seems. And I'm not just talking about some, a ticket into heaven, an escape from this life into paradise, which I believe our eternal hope is God's kingdom forever being fulfilled and the forever life that we are invited to because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes will not ultimately die but will live. We see those that endure gaining something in this life that cannot be gained in any other way. The Apostle James describes it this way in James chapter 1, verse 5, count it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of all kinds, because you know, don't you? You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James isn't speaking of an eternal day at some point where we finally get to escape this life and live the way we were meant to. He's saying, here, in this life, as you endure, your hope is with Christ to be mature and complete and lack nothing. This world holds nothing on you. Just as a diamond cannot be formed without incredible pressure and time, it seems that a beautiful, glorious, strong, and rich spiritual life cannot be formed without traveling this long, winding, and bumpy road of faith. We wrestle often, God, is it you leading me on this path, or is this simply the shape of the paths of this earth, and you are walking with me? The Apostle Paul and his traveling company of disciples and apostles had this perspective, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Do you resonate with these words? We are hard-pressed on every side. It's our reality. But we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Look how real that is. We have, we have so many questions 
about God's faithfulness to his promises and what's tomorrow, what tomorrow holds. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're even struck down at times, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed through us. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we might be wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles. In chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, he lists, is it 10 or 12? Double check me, 10 or 12. He lists his journey of abuse and suffering and persecution. And he calls them here, our light and momentary troubles. May not quite be at that place of maturity yet, are we? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And again, I don't believe Paul is only speaking of after death when we get to heaven. I think he has an eternal perspective in mind, certainly. But I believe he's saying right now, through this, as we endure, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. There's an eternal weight of glory that is being born and birthed and growing in us. It seems to be the only way. And that is better by far, according to Paul, than any other path or journey this life entices us to. And he invites us to walk it. He says it maybe more succinctly in Galatians 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. In that context of Galatians, you know, maybe, in that extended context, he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul, I think, has both in mind. When we say reap a harvest, it is our eternal home and help when the suffering will end, when the pain and trial will end, when the tears will be wiped. That is his mindset as it was for the Apostle John and for those that were trying to faithfully follow Jesus. But he also had a here now because Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life abundantly to the full. That's my heart for you. It always is. It will never change. And Paul is holding on to the harvest of the fruit of the Spirit. If we will not grow weary in doing what God has called us to do, we will reap the harvest in his time, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We look into our lives and our world and those first three fruits on the, on, the, on the list, love, joy, peace. Do we not need a harvest of those? God, grow those. Is there anything more needed or more valuable in our world today than the fruit of the Spirit? Now, these are the promises of Paul, the invitation to us today, to all of God's people. And it may still not seem worth it. I don't know, God. 
I think I'm okay. Of course I would want more love and joy and peace, but I think I'm okay if getting that takes that path that I see my brother walking or my sister walking or that I've started to experience by trying to step out in faith. I think I'm okay. Let's go back. That becomes the story of Israel. Yes, Lord, yes, we will. Let's go. Deliver us, free us, triumph. We believe, we believe, we believe. Oh, my God, no. Not this. Where are you now, God? As things get hard, as they're in the desert without food, as they're being stretched in every way. This is the journey. Do you feel like Moses? Do you feel like Israel? We're not alone. A few decades after Jesus rose from the dead, and we'll head toward the end here, the Apostle Peter and the Apostles were being asked, and it's not, all, it's not replete on the pages of Scripture, but Peter's answer in 2 Peter 3.8 answers the question that they were being asked again and again and again. How long until Jesus comes back? Oh, he didn't, he didn't tell us the exact date, but here's the kinds of things he promised. He said this generation would not pass away, and he said that he was coming soon, and he would deliver us and make all things right. It's why we've sold everything. It's why we're sharing everything, because this life is short. Hey, so it's, it's been another year, Peter. It's now been decades. How long? We're starting to doubt. We're starting to wonder. Did we really see what we thought we saw or hear what we thought we heard from your testimony? How long, Peter? How long, O oh Lord, until you come and establish your kingdom? Here we are 2,000 years later. What was Peter's answer? 2 Peter 3.8. Do not ignore this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. What Peter was saying was, this is longer than we thought, and it's been harder than we thought, and soon his own martyrdom would occur. He would give his life. But there's a reason. God is at work. He is present. He is good. He has reasons that we may not truly see, but he is intentional. Will we cling resolutely to the promises of God and in Christ, even when our present experience isn't what we expected or wanted or is heavier, or will we turn and curse him or curse the leaders who promised us better? Maybe we're not meant to cling as if we're caught in the floodwaters and our hands are on that branch and it's the last possible lifeline for us. Maybe we are meant to wrestle. This is what our God is inviting us to, knowing what we need to grow stronger. I think of the sport of wrestling, not the fake WWE thing that happens, but the sport of grappling and wrestling with an opponent. And that picture is powerful as we engage our God. Now, there's a weight class thing that happens in 
the sport of wrestling that at least somewhat evens the playing field. Uh, as a child, maybe it came to a point if you had a good dad who would actually get on the floor with you and wrestle uh, with you, you came to a point of actually believing that you, you, you had beaten your dad or could beat him, and your dad was simply engaging you. Wrestling is often intense and hand-to-hand and even cheek-to-cheek. There's moments where you simply cannot let go. And there's other moments where you must let go to reposition. There's moments of intensity that from outward appearance has no movement, followed by flurries of activity. Maybe that picture is what we're invited to in our faith journey, a wrestling with God. As Moses puts it on display, before him, Jacob, the picture actually wrestled with God himself, according to the story, whose his name was changed to Israel, which means strives with God, kind of an apt name for God's people throughout the pages of Scripture, and maybe us too, where we strive with God for his blessing, for his closeness. We also know the end of that story. Jacob walked with a limp forevermore as a reminder of who he was striving with. Maybe God marks us with limps for a reason, to keep us humble. Maybe he grieves with our limps and our pain, knowing what this world is, because he's walked it, and invites us to endurance and to faithfulness. As we close, let's look into Jesus again, who wrestled with his Father. I don't know if there's any other way to describe it. The night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll approach that soon again with intensity as we walk through Holy Week into Good Friday. Jesus enters into the garden to pray. Luke describes it as he was sweating like drops of blood. He was so intense of an anguish about what was coming for our Lord. And he prayed, wrestled, God the Father, take this cup from me, take it away. In his humanness, I don't want this path. Yet, not my will, but thy will be done. This is how our Lord walked and endured the path of faith through suffering. Lord, help us as we rightly wrestle. It's okay. I'm, inv- I'm inviting you. I think the pages of Scripture are inviting you to wrestle in your faith with God's promises and with his presence in the here and now, in our world today. Ask those big questions. Grapple with your God. Let me pray for you the words that I believe Paul inspires from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, church, do not lose heart. Though outwardly you may be experiencing pain and loss, inwardly be renewed day by day. For these trials are but light and momentary. They result in eternal glory that outshines them all. Fix your eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Fix your eyes on Christ, who has gone before us into every trial 
and through temptation and has triumphed our Lord, our King, our Savior. Be the glory forever and ever. Amen.